Milk Podcast. My name is Dash McIntyre. And I'm Adrian Pope. And today we've got a fun little podcast we're going to do. Um, it was inspired by, I believe his name's Eric Weinstein, Eric Weinstein. Uh, he talks with Sam Harris and Joe Rogan. He's in that like intellectual dark web group a little bit. Um, I was listening to some of his podcasts recently, and I don't really find myself agreeing with him that much. But he did make the quote, I think he was talking uh, with Sam Harris. Sam Harris was talking about how Trump's tweets are stupid. And this guy was disagreeing with that assessment, saying that he thinks there is a there's more method than madness to Donald Trump's Twitter. And I just want to call complete bullshit on that. I think that is entirely untrue. What do you think, Adrian? Do you think there is? Was a, it, uh, do you think it's four-dimensional chess? Was this, was Sam Harris saying that it, he thought it was more to it or more? No, Eric Weinstein, that guy, or Weinstein. Oh, okay. Sorry, yeah. I don't know his name. Uh, I totally disagree. For one, I think he tweets too many times in the day, and there's far too little time in between the tweets. So unless he's spending hours planning them out, I think he's literally just tweeting whatever comes to his mind. Yeah, and you can tell you can tell sometimes he's literally just watching Fox News and retweeting uh, like Brett Baer or uh, you know Sean Hannity or somebody. You can literally tell well, can what tell- he's watching. Well, yeah, you can tell just by the fact that it's he's tweeted like 50,000, almost 51,000 times. Um, how much, you know, Machiavellian thinking could go into 50,000 of anything? Right. Yeah. He's just one guy. And we know he tweets himself because uh, his aides talk about how he's always tweeting. Um, you know, most of his tweets, just by the way they're written and the voice, you can definitely tell it's him. Um, and there's only been a couple instances where tweets were found out to have been mainly written by someone else, and they're so obvious. <laughs> yeah, there's even been some issues where you where they've wanted to claim it was someone else. Like, what I forget mm-hmm. what it was, but he tweeted something so bad, and then immediately other people were taking blame for it or whatever, which, of course, yeah. Trump would do that. Um, so we were thinking with this podcast, we're just kind of go scroll through his Twitter and point out some interesting tweets. Uh, and uh, kind of view it under the prism of that thesis of whether or not uh, Donald Trump is a genius with his tweets in a way that we just can't uh, uh, have any perception of. So uh, we're looking at it on Thursday, April 23rd at about 7 o'clock. Right off the bat, he's basically just tweeting a bunch of endorsements to um, different conservative Republicans for Congress. Uh, And... His captions are all pretty much the same, so that's kind of funny that he's basically just copying and pasting his uh, his tweets and changing the name to endorse these people. Um, he's mentioning that they're strong on the border, tough on crime, will protect our vets, and our great Second Amendment. Uh, I, I, I want to talk about that for a minute because it's kind of funny. There's some kind of irony in this because... Strong on the border. Is Trump really strong on the border himself, like he's kind of suggesting here, when all he's doing is renovating some fencing? He didn't get any money for the wall. He's probably not going to get any money from the wall. And even then, our immigration problem is... <laughs> the wall is not the end-all solution to stop immigrants from coming in here. And it's ironic because like most immigrants that do come to America are like students who went to college here and just never left. Or they're people mm-hmm. who have been living here for their entire lives or decades and obviously aren't going to move back. Their lives are here. So right off the bat, being strong on the border and the way that Trump is happy about it just 
it's not as effective, I don't think, as the experts would uh, suggest. Then he says tough on crime, which is another ironic one because Donald Trump is kind of a giant criminal. You know, he's been yeah. uh, impeached. <laughs> he's got several, maybe dozens of lawsuits in all walks of uh, his professional and political career going through the court systems. So, like, tough well, on... Yeah, in theory, if, if, if someone Trump is... Uh... <laughs> saying you should vote for him for being tough on crime, hypothetically, he should then vote to impeach Trump, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> if he's really tough yeah. on crime. This tough on crime candidate should get into office and immediately start investigating Trump's finances and things like that. Um, and then, of course, great on the Second Amendment. Um, I don't think Donald Trump gives a shit about the Second Amendment. I don't, he's, I don't think he's been hunting. His kids go out and hunt and stuff, but, I mean, Donald Trump... I mean, do you think Donald Trump enjoys the outdoors at all? He's from Manhattan. He lives on the top floor of a penthouse and doesn't really have to leave. He famously turned down um, going to, uh, what's it, Masada, that uh, fortress in Israel, because there were so many steps and he couldn't helicopter to the <laughs> top of it. So he chose not to go check it out. Um, you know, I just don't think Trump is that big of a person outdoors, hunting, guns in general. So the idea that he's always talking about, like his tweets recently about how um, conservatives need to liberate Virginia from the anti-gun governor and the quarantine and stuff like that. Uh, well, you know, Trump, you know, Trump's never been outside because he didn't even do any photo ops. Like at least Obama took a photo of him shooting a shotgun. You yeah, know? <laughs> right. Uh, you've never seen anything like that with Donald Trump for sure. Right. Plus, great on the Second Amendment is kind of a stupid issue because there aren't that many high-level Democrats who are like against the Second Amendment. They just don't think you should be able to have an unlimited amount of uh, automatic firearms, which is, you know. Whether or not you think that's uh, killing the Second Amendment or not, I don't think it inherently destroys it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's such like a if, basic thing. They just want to like close the gun show loophole. Um, they ha like have a th like a red flag kind of system where if you threaten to kill people with guns more than like three times, maybe then you yeah. you don't get to have guns. <laughs> you know, if it's one well, other thing record. is if you have like if you were to buy a tank, like don't you think the uh, maybe you should be put on a list. Or yeah. if you were to buy like old World War Two vintage bombs or something that or like, still had like the or depth charges, <laughs> yeah, like those mines they the find. Oh yeah, yeah. Like right. if you found those mines and some guy living in Norfolk was like, "I want mines in case the Navy comes after me. I'm gonna mine the <laughs> harbor." It's like I think the yeah. government would care. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's one thing to want guns to protect yourself against the government like coming at you with an army, but to really start preparing for a, for an attack against the U.S. Navy, <laughs> that's. You're really planning ahead at that point. <laughs> you want to start leaving uh, sea mines in a harbor near your house so you can destroy like a battleship or something. That's kind of that's where funny. the argument completely breaks down because it makes zero sense, right? So if you if you need to have a bunch of machine guns so you can fight like I don't know what the U.S. Army. Well, what happens if you get tomahawked? Well, that's like that Jim Jeffries joke about bringing a a. AR-15 or whatever to a drone fight, like, you have no chance. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. Um, so going down, I'm skipping some tweets that are just kind of boring stuff. He, one of them, he's just retweeting himself. Uh, some Just some articles uh, about a flyover from the Blue Angels, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's kind of, you know, normal uh, ceremonial tweets that you might expect from the president. Uh, but here's a good tweet, kind of the first insult tweet we get to. 
Trump writes, it's amazing that I became president of the United States with such a totally corrupt and dishonest lamestream media going after me all day and all night. Either I'm really good, far better than the fake news wants to admit, or they don't have nearly the power as once thought. Um, I like this because I love the term lamestream. I think, did Sarah Palin invent that? If she didn't, if she wasn't the one who started it, she definitely is the one who really popularized it. Yeah, and said it a lot. Yeah, but the idea of the lamestream media, which itself I would argue is a very lame term to call it. And if you're really going back to like media bias, really, I mean... It goes back to like I guess what like uh, Nixon and and Reagan really being upset that the major uh, main mainstream uh, networks like CBS, ABC, and NBC were like partisan by having you know like I guess factual based journalism that made them look bad when think like the war was going the wrong way you know um, Nixon got impeached Reagan was lying about all this Iran Contra stuff tax cuts didn't work out like they said. Um, and then it gets to basically like a fever pitch by the time Clinton takes over where they're just like really upset that Bill Clinton, I guess, is popular and Newt Gingrich kind of invents the idea of like total war and politics and personal vengeance. Um, interestingly, I read this, this is maybe on a tangent, but I was reading that, uh, Newt Ging Gingrich was the first, uh, main politician and speaker of the house in the early nineties. He was the one who wanted, uh, they tried to get his uh, representatives in the House to not uh, stay in D.C., but to go home yeah. and, like, stir up trouble, which, I mean, say what, you, right, and say what you will about um, the kind of establishment and entrenched elites and stuff, but arguably our government did work way better with way more across-the-aisle bipartisanship when all of the uh, members of Congress lived in D.C., spent all their free time together, their kids all went to the same schools in D.C., their wives uh, and kids were all friends, like intermingling. Um, you know, say what you will about that, uh, about the kind of established elitism that I guess might be inherent from that. But at least, you know, all of our uh, our representatives and senators had good relationships with each other. And things well, at least the government worked and did stuff. Right, exactly. Yeah, so, so uh, this tweet is kind of just a dumb uh, anti-media, which I guess if you're talking, it's not really like a, a clever strategy, but I guess it's a strategy to convince a lot of his supporters and fans that the media sucks and to not believe it, to not believe the media when the media is reporting that Trump blatantly committed crimes and impeachable offenses and things. I guess it works like for that. Well, it's just always funny to hear Donald Trump brag about how he won the election when he lost the vote count, mm -hmm. which is, I mean, yeah, he won. He, I mean, fair and square, he won the, the election on, you know, the technicality of the Electoral College. But as far as being in a democracy, why would you brag about winning an election um, that you didn't actually really win right. the vote? And as far as I'm concerned, I'm not, I'm not convinced that Donald Trump uh, wanted to be president in the first place. Um, certainly he seemed surprised more than anybody the way he was always talking about Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. No one's, everyone said he couldn't do it. He was always trying to like just tweet pictures of his electoral college victory. Um, is that the sound, is, is that, does that sound like a confident winner <laughs> who knew it was possible? <laughs> well, here's another thing. If you're talking about all these tweets in the guise of is Trump somehow playing 4D chess? I don't see how this tweet does anything it's just him bragging that he won the election and that the media right. couldn't make him lose 
And he's always concerned about ratings, and this kind of gets into it. He's saying that the media doesn't have as much power as they once thought. And he's always talking about how all of the journalists, uh, their media companies' ratings are going down. <laughs> and I think and it's, it's funny because it's completely the opposite. Like, CNN has never had higher ratings, I don't believe. Like, more people... Tr- I mean, granted, it, Trump is good for them in that regard, but he always mm-hmm. calls them, like, the failing New York Times the failing Washington Post, failing <laughs> sleepy CNN or whatever he says. And it's kind of a weird thing to think that really right now is kind of like the heyday of, uh, it's like a resurgence of uh, news. Granted, a lot of it's partisan, but, um, you know, not that... I wouldn't well, say it's a heyday because when they have the, you know, they find the giant scoops of government um uh, and, and certainly presidential corruption, nothing happens. So yeah, I mean, well, it's I a good time true. for, yeah, I think it's a good time for comedy. It's probably a good time for editorials because you have a lot of these um, media people who can actually speak their mind um, and not pretend. Yeah, to, certainly um, editorials for sure. But on the yeah. other hand, I would argue that people are probably more aware of politics than ever before. I think if you went back to the 50s and the 60s, I think you could. I think the average person could probably name more members of Congress or something. Or uh, you know, granted, there's a lot of controversy because Trump is so bad and everything gets in the news because he's uh, so polarizing and so kind of like arguably terrible and everything. Uh, but I would I would say more people would probably have access to the news on, on a daily basis than ever before. Before, I guess you had to read the paper all the time and watch like the hourly news at night. But now on social media, people are bombarded with uh, political posts. Wouldn't you say? Granted, some oh, of it's yeah, wrong, for sure. but some of it's very. I mean, if you look at history, when they started doing polling and stuff in the really the first scientific polls, kind of late fifties, early sixties, they had a lot of people who voted for the political party just because their parents did. And when they actually took like political science like quizzes. They actually like would score as if they should have voted for the other party, but they were like lifelong Democrats or vice versa. Yeah. So I think today, almost certainly, a higher percentage of people know exactly why they vote for the party they do, and most of them right. have nothing to do with how their parents voted. Yeah. Uh, and here's another thought about the media. I was kind of thinking about uh, a lot of people complain that the media has like never been worse. But if you actually look through history, like the 1890s and early 1900s had super partisan. Uh, newspapers like the late 1880s and 1890s all the newspapers were like specifically partisan rags for um for a specific party led by people that you know had you know had political power i guess in that party and like entire newspapers would be nothing but the party line and so i think everything being silical we're kind of heading back into that and arguably we're in that now with these like logarithms where um when Facebook and social media only shows you um, the stuff you will either get mad at or agree with, that it is kind of like that, like as if you read only a super partisan news source. But what do you think are some solutions for the media, whether uh, direct action or just like a natural trend that will kind of push the pendulum more toward the center of kind of stability and like mainstream news that isn't so biased? Maybe you start getting sources that are intentionally unbiased. That everybody well, here's something. It. Well, I think it's problematic, um, and not in the the far left kind of use of problematic, but it's problematic to say that the media is biased because a lot of things they post, like if they say Donald Trump said this, that was a lie, they'll be accused of being biased. But you know, 
you can get into what truths are objective and, and, you know, can you find real objective truth? And I think a lot of times Donald Trump says stuff or does stuff and then either lies about it. And if the media reports that, you, you can say they're biased, but they're literally, that's literally the news of the day is that Donald Trump did this. He lied about it or he <laughs> said he did this yeah. or, you know, hey, Donald Trump is opening up concentration camps. Now, you can say that's biased, but that's hard to deny the fact that he literally did open up concentration camps on the southern border and when you hear more news stories over the days afterwards like oh they're losing children or uh some kids died or these kids will never see their parents again like that's not biased news that's literally the news of the day the podcast i was watching earlier was kind of mentioning they were kind of getting a little pissy about how like the media has these writers for like the new york times and all of these bastions of kind of traditional standard bearing news and how you get all of these writers who write kind of like for their day job, their articles that are supposedly unbiased. But then at night they get up, get off work and go on Twitter and start publishing like all kinds of biased opinions, blah, blah, blah. And I, I thought, you know what, that is kind of an interesting point. But it, I mean, it's not like uh, like uh, what is it? AP and Reuters where, the, where you don't really get bylines and the, all the articles have to be for like AP or whatever. It's not like mm -hmm. that. The New York Times, you know, you kind of get to be a writer that uh, gets your work cited and stuff, and you can have kind of your tone to some degree. Obviously, there's editors. But, I mean, is why, why would you get so pissed off that then they go at night and have opinions on Twitter, which arguably would be a different kind of forum or media center than is, like, going and getting a New York Times and opening it and viewing it within that kind of like forum of the New York Times and all the editors that have done all the work and everything like that. Uh, well, one thing I'll just that's say fair? is, I mean, yeah, I think it's completely fair because you go to your job and then you still have the freedom of speech at your at the end of your job. And then conservatives wouldn't be saying shit about this. Like, if you look at what Fox News hosts probably tweet, especially during the Obama era, I doubt there's any Fox News viewers who honestly, deep down inside, believe the media is biased don't also think the same thing about Fox News. You wouldn't hear anyone listening to Fox News going, oh, well, this guy's biased because at night he tweets anti-Obama things. It's like, no, you get what you expect. And a lot of, I mean, that's the problem with these echo chambers, right? However, I will say for actual media people uh, and real journalists, for example, like the New York Times, not counting the editorial page, but the real New York Times columnist, uh, you know, if they... They could lose their job if they write something for their day job and say this happened and it didn't or it was a lie. They get fired. You know, meanwhile, they could also say, hey, this person in the Trump administration said this. And if, you know, it turned out not to be true, um, they would probably have hell rained down on him. Look at like, uh, who is that guy? Uh, Peter Jennings or something. Uh, no, that's not the guy. Uh, Brian Williams, right, of uh, MSNBC. Oh, right. He, he said he was in a war the, uh, zone. Yeah, right. Yeah, he just lied about a war. At. Yeah, exactly. And he almost got fired. He was put on, like, uh, paid or unpaid leave, but he couldn't work for a while while they sorted it out. Like, that's what happens when a real uh, journalist says something stupid during their day job. Um, and yeah, you definitely true. don't see that in other parts of the media that aren't real, you know, and that's like another thing people always complain about, oh, well, I don't trust the media. That's why I go to this like blah, blah, blah website. <laughs> yeah. Well, the funniest example is like you go to a website that has the word skeptic in it and it's like, wow, congratulations. You were skeptical on everything except the bullshit on this one webpage you believe in suddenly. Yeah. Um, right. But or, or the yeah, term so, patriot. Anytime patriots in the headline of <laughs> Of a, yeah. of a new source, it's probably pretty stupid. I mean, 
like if you take the average far right or far left guy who's just you know claiming to do their own research but most of that's just google searching and they're only google searching until they find what already suits their you know their uh what they already believed before and they're just going to print or you know write on their blog whatever they find afterwards that fits their uh interpretation of the news well if that guy lies or says something wrong nothing's going to happen in fact his readers won't even find out about it if you know you could have a hundred thousand people calling him out on twitter saying that he lied he's a screw-up but if none of those other people who read him are following new york times uh columnists on twitter they're never going to hear about it yeah um, what do you think about some kind of, I guess, in the future, we're kind of doing it now, but in the future where you kind of like late, like Facebook or something or social media forums, if they label the content in any number of ways that you might be able to figure out a system. But if you could label that it leans left, leans right, is moderate or relatively trustworthy. Because I, I mean, like with the halfway post, I know when I post on Reddit on some of the subreddits. Uh, they have like a little bot that'll say this is satire and automatically supply like the mm-hmm. satire tag or whatever, and um, that's kind of a good idea, especially with satire. Because I mean, unlike some of these fake news people, I'm intentionally, you know, uh, intentionally writing uh, exaggerated things for comedic effect, and I don't mind the satire tag being applied to it. But I'm also not directly just trying to lie to get people to hate the other side. I'm trying to make them think. And uh, like laugh first and yeah, foremost, and above that, like right on the top of my page, uh, just below the name of the website is that it's satirical news. At the very bottom, all the tags are satire, humor, comedy, and then uh, I have like literally a written thing saying follow all of my social media handles if you want more political satire and humor and blah blah blah. So I mean, I personally don't mind that it works for satire pretty well, and I guess it's kind of nice. Some, I mean, even though I try to make my headlines pretty uh, exaggerated, um, I try to kind of balance on that line of, you know, fake news versus really funny exaggeration. Um, you know, sometimes I might get closer to one side or the other, but, um, you know, it's kind of nice that in the future, you know, maybe all of that would be tagged so people don't believe it. I mean, I've had some viral articles get super viral from people who just posted off of the headline. And it's like mm-hmm. that's it's like that South Park episode with the uh, human centipede where Steve Jobs just wants people to read the terms of conditions, you know, where yeah. they all just keep doing it and then they all sign up for like the the human centipede. It's like I put, I do these headlines. It's like no, just read the article before you just you know before someone big on like MSNBC reposts it and it goes viral <laughs> on Twitter or something. But what do you think well, about yeah. that of like giving it some kind of like like label? Of like what it's uh, kind of ideological bias or leaning or whatever is well we kind of already do that a lot if you look at like what a hashtag is i mean people are already kind of labeling everything now um we have an in- there's a whole interesting debate that I've, I've heard a lot about for like social media companies where you know if you're a running a company or a media thing and you're an editorial well then the editor is supposed to be in charge of making sure things that violate laws or aren't true don't get in there right that's the job of an editor they edit stuff out um, so the same thing doesn't necessarily apply to social media because they say we're just a platform you know we're not editors any you know we're a platform and anyone can post whatever they want so I mean I see both sides of the argument and it's kind of interesting and I, I might want to throw this back to you in a second what you think but like I think to some degree um, I think social media have some role to play in throwing out harmful stuff but how I mean when things get especially with politics are so tinged with 
just inherent bias or, you know, people, there's biases of just lying. There's biases of leaving stuff out. Like maybe you tell half the story and not the whole story. Or maybe you go into so much detail that you're ex assigning, you know, uh, evilness to people who, you know, really aren't doing evil things. So there's all kinds of biases. And I don't see a way that the social media companies could ever get it right. And everyone's just going to uh, continue complaining about it. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic because Facebook and uh, Twitter, the CEOs have all kind of said statements like, you don't, you know, like you don't want us to be the arbiters of what's true or not. You don't want Facebook to decide what you can and can't post. And I'm sympathetic to that idea that they're kind of adverse to being the kind of uh, arbitrator or, you know, with all of the kind of negative, uh, you know, roads that that could go down where Facebook kind of has all this power deciding what is and what isn't, things like that. And I mean, that's kind of a good point that I think any libertarian would be uh, interested in kind of uh, uh, believing. But on the other hand, they, there has to be some responsibility. They're not, they can't only just be a forum when like, uh, there was that instance like a year or two ago where there was like literally genocide in, uh, what was it, Burma? Based mm -hmm. off of these like Facebook groups and Facebook posts. And uh, like obviously at that point, Facebook has become so big, it is somewhat of a public utility. And at some point there has to be some kind of, uh, but again, uh, will the kind of oversight and regulation come from the government, which kind of Facebook wants? I think Facebook has actually, like lawyers and stuff, have actually kind of been begging politicians to actually set the rules and tell them what to do rather than them decide. And, yeah, you know, decide what you want about their motives and things like that. But, I mean, clearly this is an area that uh, government regulation uh, has not kept up with reality. Well, the funny thing now, especially if you look at it like, a, you know, for someone like us who are millennials and grew up with like the early days of the Internet, um, when you couldn't trust anything, part of me just wants to say, if it's on the Internet, don't necessarily trust it anyway. And maybe if you really want the real news, buy a newspaper where they have lawyers who defend them and basically, you know, um, are involved with firing journalists if they, you know, write the wrong thing or write something that's just patently false. Uh, ironically, people aren't doing that, and they're actually turning away from the only media sources that do actually hold their people accountable for telling the truth or not. Um, so it's kind of funny. It's like, what do you do in this situation? Everybody's complaining that everything on the internet's fake, but it's kind of like, well, that's kind of how it's been for 20 years. Why do you expect yeah. it to be different now? See, I think the solution is going to be very, very complicated because right now, there still is a lot of print media, which obviously is kind of waning. And, well, it's uh, dying. Yeah, yeah it's, it's dying really in many areas. So essentially, I think a lot of this would come down to money. If there's enough money online and money starts being like all of these major conglomerate companies that own these websites and news sources or whatever, they start having like being financially responsible for whether it's like boycotts or if writers start posting all this bullshit that, you know, people will boycott the companies and all the companies that the... <laughs> Sorry, the uh, media companies um, kind of oversee in their portfolio or whatever. Uh, but on the other hand, there's just not that much money yet in the Internet. And that's what kind of has sensationalized media on the Internet so much is that there's so little money and you're so desperate for clicks and views and things like that. that that's where you get this hardcore kind of like yellow sensationalist clickbait. 
Um, and it's kind of like a race to the bottom to get everyone's eyeballs because what little money there can be squeezed from the internet really comes down to that advertising and like where the eyes are. But on the other hand, I kind of think of it as like, uh, I've seen this uh, offered by some people that at some point these social media companies will have to start giving some of the profits they make to the creators that are making all of the content that keeps people on those social media sites. And I'm sympathetic mm -hmm. to that idea as well, because like if you have a giant website and uh, you know you get uh, hundreds of thousands of reactions and tons and tons of people following you and every day going to Facebook and clicking on your articles and sharing them and getting more people to stay on Facebook and read the article, at some point these like you know any social media company will have to if they're making tons of money like Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> well, I don't know if Twitter is really that profitable, but Facebook with their advertising is making tons of money. And at a certain point, some of that advertising money has to go to the content creators that are creating the content from which those ads Facebook actually places and gets well, kind of a monopoly. People. Yeah, in many ways, it is kind of like a weird monopoly. Um, I don't know. It's a very weird thing that the internet's still trying to figure out, too. Um, the fact that, like, in the old days, you just buy a newspaper, um, and there were only a couple in the city, so they kind of had a captive market of some right. sort. Um, but now you go to a website, and websites don't in actually cost money. That you know, just like newspapers have their overhead, internet companies and, and media um, have a unique kind of overhead that, without like just trying to make, like you said, sensationalist clickbait, uh, it's hard for them to actually make money because the one of the only revenue sources for a website that's not selling something is just the clicks and the advertising that are 100% dependent on those clicks. And you see, I mean, they've done all kinds of things to try to manipulate that. Like, you ever go to a website and it, it'll be like top 50 things, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And every one of those is in a slideshow with a slightly oh, yeah. link at the yeah, top. Yeah, I was going to bring so that like, up. Yeah. yeah, you get like 50 clicks in one just for one article, basically. Um, and then, I mean... So I think a lot of these companies are still trying to figure out, like people keep saying that the, the New York Times is losing so much money that they're only kept afloat by their podcast and their podcast, you know, that's something that, you know, the market's kind of figured out with uh, advertising is just a couple advertisements at the beginning, maybe some at the end. And, you know, somehow that makes so much money. It's keeping the New York Times afloat, allegedly. That's what I hear from other places. But I mean, think about that. You have a, a huge media conglomerate. Well, I shouldn't say media conglomerate, but news conglomerate, you know, world renowned with a world name and they're only making money selling ads on a podcast. Like that's kind of crazy. Yeah. And it's crazy, too, because when you stop having these giant newspapers that have like the actual manpower to go and actually investigate things in depth, we're going to have a real loss of quality of news and oversight and kind of uh, what do they call it? The fifth column is the media or the fourth column. Do you remember which one? It's one of the two, fifth or fourth the column. The fifth column's like someone inside your organization who's trying to bring it down from within, right? No, no, no. They call it as like it's like a it's like a kind of like the fourth branch of government or whatever. It's like one of those things. But anyway, like journalism's really going down because, you know, as we get the sensationalist news that's not making any money and you can't really pay people, the incentive for kind of like online journalism is just to like be on a computer, watch a comedian, and then write a blog post about how that comedian's joke was problematic for, you know, five paragraphs or whatever. And then just send well, you know that out there and have that go viral based on like other people, you know, like bringing other well, people yeah. down or something. That's kind of like where I see like, the the race to the bottom of kind of like digital journalism 
Well, I'd say it's ironic because the loss of trust in the media is coming at the worst time because this is the best time for a lot of newspapers, if you think about it, because they could cut all their overhead if they're no longer delivering newspapers and could put everything online. And, you know, people pay for newspapers. So if you just put like a free subscription of like $1.99 per month or per quarter, whatever, I mean, the New York Times could make just as much money as they did, you know, 30 years ago. It's just it's unfortunate for timing for the the traditional media, because now you have people who provide all their news for free and they're just relying on clickbait ad revenue from ads on the website. So like they're providing a free service to a consumer. So it seems right. But they're still profiting off the clicks, uh, whereas now you have a situation where media companies are, you know, traditional media companies, they they're kind of in a bind because they've lost they're, they're able to get rid of their overhead, but they've also lost the most amount of trust that they had and their most amount of viewers that they used to have. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're just still kind of in the early infancy of uh, internet. Obviously, you know, like by like 2050 or whatever, the integration of the entire world consciousness on the internet is going to be so much more than now. Um, it is kind of interesting, though, having grown up. I mean, uh, we were both born in 1991, so it's kind of fascinating to have seen, to kind of grow up with the internet. But even now, like sometimes when you click on an article, if you Google something and you find an article from like 2002 or something, and like just look at it, and it's like literally the same format and kind of design of whatever website of like the New York Times in 2002 or like 1999 or whatever, and just seeing like kind of how archaic. The internet used to be um it is kind of interesting just to see how far it's come it'll be a funny uh time capsule when we're like 90 oh years yeah old. i think about that a like... lot because it's like when you look at black and white photographs like obviously the color really good photographs that we have right now that we think are perfectly fine and perfect and what could be better but in the future uh when everything's like moving and like records like video or whatever we don't even have photos yeah, hologram. anymore yeah like just having a still two-dimensional photo will be like the, the equivalent of like black and white photos or paintings from you know centuries past um any any other comments on the uh, the media or do you want to go right into the next tweet we kind of we, we talked quite yeah, a little bit there beyond uh, trump's tweets didn't we yeah let's look at some more tweets. Yeah. here's one he goes 96 percent approval rating in the republican party thank you this must also mean that most importantly we are doing a good in parentheses great job in the handling of the pandemic uh, <laughs> it's funny how he does that he always writes like parentheses and kind of like narrates his own tweets in the same way that he like narrates his own speeches when he'll like break the fourth wall look at the audience and mention like that's a good line or a lot of people don't know this but um it's just funny it, it, it's kind of like trump just admitting that uh i don't know that he that he's an idiot that he doesn't know what he's talking about or something the way he narrates everything also i well, think the tweet's dumb because how can you say he's done a good job i saw a statistic it said you know united states is five percent of the world's population but we have 25 percent of the deaths of covid how could you say that's a a good response to COVID if yeah, you're, know, right. you have an exaggerated proportion of the amount of deaths. Yeah, we're the outlier. The population. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've seen those maps where they show like how many uh, cases they have per day and the, the United States just skyrockets basically yeah. way faster than any other country. And I mean, that is not a, <laughs> if, if he did such a great job that I think that graph would look a little yeah. different. 
I've seen some uh, good commercials against Trump about it. I think like the I forget the name, the Lincoln Group or something that like I think it's Republicans that don't like Trump. Um, Joe Biden has done a couple ads that I've seen. Um, I do know that uh, I've seen some polling showing that his uh, approval ratings are going down. The rating of uh, how he's handling the pandemic is going down quite dramatically. I think we're getting kind of to the point now where like you can't hide the fact that like <laughs> 40,000 people have died or whatever it is now. It's like 47,000 people have now died. So, I mean, you can lie and say you do a great job. The economy is so strong, blah, blah, blah. But when it's like a cold, hard fact like that, Trump really maybe can't lie as much as he wants to about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I, mean, I think 96% yeah. approval rating of the Republican Party, that just seems suspiciously high. I wonder if his ratings are actually going up as more and more people stop considering themselves Republicans. And when they take polls yeah. now, they consider themselves yeah. independents. So that the few, so it's a fewer remaining like group of people that call themselves Republicans, which means the approval rating would, I guess, be going higher, given that all the people who don't like him don't want to be associated with the party they have yeah. considered themselves in for so many years. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I, I saw a news story today was talking about how COVID could actually disrupt the 2020 elections for Republicans. Uh, which would be kind of an interesting cherry on top for this supposed good slash great in parentheses uh, COVID response, if you think about it. Mm. Like, what if COVID itself, because they so poorly reacted and responded to it, lost in the election by a lot? Because uh, they saw that some of the exit polls of Wisconsin, that a lot of old people, or a fewer percentage of old people, right, uh, didn't go out and vote, right? Because they were afraid of COVID right. and possibly getting it. In Wisconsin, yeah, um, it's a little complicated that it's not that can't really be extrapolated nationally because obviously Wisconsin's every state has its own system, but it is something to think about that especially in terms of old people dying. And then uh, I, I saw an article I think it was an opinion piece, so not really it was just kind of like thinking, but like the idea that the more old people who die from complications of other things with coronavirus, uh, you know, and some Trump won uh, the the kind of major swing states only by like ten thousand votes. I mean, if we yeah. get to a million deaths in uh, for coronavirus, I mean, you're getting maybe pretty close crazy. to some of those margins of maybe Trump supporters who died. Um, obviously, the older you are, the more kind of natural skew you have to conservatism for a um, variety of reasons. Um, so yeah. it's definitely older people who uh, who dying like would uh, affect Republicans a little bit more than Democrats. Um, here's the, I don't think it would. I mean, I don't think it would matter. Um, I mean, it's a terrible thing that Americans are dying, and and it's sad that more are going to die because of what the government didn't do early on. But right. I mean, I don't think that's. I, I think Trump is probably going to lose the election anyway. Um, but it would be weird if he lost significantly more just because of that fact. Um, right. Um, I do want to talk real quick while we're on coronavirus about the. Um, about uh, like Georgia, because he tweeted the other day that uh, he strongly disagrees with uh, what's the governor's name Kemp, uh, yeah. Kemp's decision to um, end, to to end the quarantine, which is so weird and ironic because it's like a one eighty. Because just like a few days ago, he was tweeting liberate Virginia, Michigan, mm -hmm. and Pennsylvania, or whatever other states need to go protest and free their states. And <laughs> like in Virginia, he always brings up the Second Amendment. Um, so it's so weird that he, 
that he he wants it both ways. That he doesn't want to take responsibility for anything bad, but he wants all the credit for anything that's good. That he wants to end the quarantine to get the economy going, but he also doesn't want to be responsible for any of the added deaths and negative consequences of uh, having like a resurgence or a second wave of the coronavirus uh, kind of spread. It, it's just so weird that he... It's like so brazen. He's, it's just such flip-floppery based off of whatever like kind of well, can, is the circumstantial exactly, situation. Yeah, and that shows exactly the point that he's not playing 4D chess with his Twitter because if he constantly right. is going back and forth, what, like, what's, the, what's the strategy there? If you're playing chess, you can't just switch your strategy every three moves. Like you're going to lose. Um, here, here's some other COVID facts that I, I just pulled up and they're, they're fascinating to think about. So this week, uh, this morning, it's Thursday, so they put out the uh, unemployment numbers for the previous week. So 4.4 million Americans filed for unemployment last week. And that brings the total to 26.5 million unemployed, which 26.5 million unemployed, that is more than the amount of jobs gained since 2009. So it's interesting when you talk about elections being like the the central question like are you better off than you were four years ago um not only are we worse off than we were four years ago we were worse off than we were eight years ago um so we're now at like the economic you know the economic i shouldn't say economic but what i'm trying to say is just like the dow jones and the s p 500 the other major stock indexes are down you know almost i think they're below trump's administration uh right now well, I, I guess they're probably higher at this point than when he started. But, you know, briefly, when the Dow Jones went to 18,000, um, that was below. That was like from 2015 or something, the last time the Dow was that low. So his whole thing is that he the economy has never been better. But 26.5 million unemployed, that's amazing because uh, I looked at the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, data uh, of their jobs numbers uh, a couple weeks ago. And we only have like 146 million people, something like that, who have jobs total. That's like the amount of Americans with jobs, 146 million. So 26.5 million of those people have lost their jobs. Um, So, I mean, that's more than, I mean, what's the percentage on that, right? I mean, it's more than 10%. See, I I, I wonder about that. um, Like, it's amazing that people have not been able to convince Trump the self-interest that comes from just taking the momentary hit on the economy to make sure coronavirus stops. Because as bad Mm -hmm. as things are now for the economy, like, what if Georgia opens up and then Florida opens up and then they start spreading it again to all the states? Because, like, right now, I think yesterday, I believe, or the day before was, like, finally the peak that either today and yesterday or something like that, just the last couple days... Uh, actually stopped growing the, like the the uh, the amount of like new cases breaking records. So uh, grant you know who knows where things will be in another day, but at least it's like kind of like one small silver lining is that like for the first time we haven't broken the record for most new cases in a day or whatever for uh-huh. like a day or two. So I mean that's kind of good news if we're kind of like starting to flatten the curve like only right now. But imagine then we get another fucking wave, and then what happens if? America is the only country with another wave, right? Like South in a, in some of those provinces in China and South Korea that had it so bad. Like you see images of people going back out into public and having restaurants because they they've done such dramatic testing regimens that they know where the virus is and people can kind of have somewhat of a return of normalcy. Something that yeah. we do not have here in America, even though I believe South Korea and America had our first confirmed case the exact same day, right? 
Oh, yeah. Um, and, and South Korea, I mean, what does that show about their response versus ours that they're telling people they can go back right. and, and have dinner at a restaurant? Yeah. I saw pictures of that, too. It was people sitting outside in tables at restaurants. Right. And, it's and they important. Were still wearing, some of them were still wearing masks and stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's a f- level. You know, all those Republicans and Libertarians who talk about freedom. I think South Korea has more freedom than us right now. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's also important to note that um, South Korea has greater population density than America. It has much bigger cities with much more crowded living conditions. So, um, again, America is just an outlier. So it's preposterous to call for Trump to just be, you know, congratulating himself for what a great, bold job he has done. Here's Here's another thing. So if some of those conservative states um, start opening up too early again, I mean... We talked about this before, how like on every single metric you have, and and this is some generality here, but for the most part, if a statistic uh, measuring something that's good, like economic purchasing power or infant mortality or literacy, what you see almost on the whole is a trend that just generally more strong blue states are higher than strong red states, where you have things that like, you know, people talk about, oh, this or that, you know, X, Y, and Z in America, you know, makes us 40th of the developed world or we're only 24th in the world. But it's like a lot of those blue states that Republicans like to hate on are much higher than our average. And it's other red states that are bringing our averages down. So if they open up their states to, uh, you know, people to go back to life as normal, it's just gonna be one of those other statistics that you just constantly see with the left, right, uh, blue-red kind of divide where if you look at the data, you're going to see the red states had way more coronavirus hits and deaths and, and punishment, basically, than than traditional blue states. And, yeah, you know, right. for all we know, that might end up, you know, New York is probably by far the state that was hit the worst. And, like, if a state like Georgia just opens up and just doesn't do anything, like, you're going to have a much smaller populated state have way worse effect of COVID than you know, New York, which New York City alone has, what, 8 million people, right. um, which is probably more than the population of Georgia, for all I know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, it's not that high, and they could have more people die from COVID. Yeah. Um, did you see the mayor of Las Vegas went on Anderson Cooper yesterday and was saying that she wants her city to open up and that she didn't mind her city being like the the trial case of what happens when you don't do anything? And she was saying, like, she wants people, you know, Anderson Cooper was literally like asking her, uh, like, so you want the city to open up, blah, blah, blah. And she was talking about how like the, the casinos can do what they have to do and figure out how they uh, want to, how, like, how they want to open it and make it safe, but that people should be able to go back out there and start spending their money. <laughs> and she, and he was saying like, well, what are you doing as the mayor of the city to like help prevent the spread and to help, help the people who have it and to help prevent more people from getting it. And she was just saying that like, like she wasn't really doing anything and that like she didn't have any ideas for how the casinos could safely do it, just that she wanted it to open and they can figure out for themselves however they want to do it to make it safe. She was saying like, oh, I don't own a casino, you know, but if I did, I would be cleaning it so well, but it would be open and to the effect. And Anderson Cooper, like, he just started like pouncing on her because obviously it's like a blatant newsworthy moment and like a huge, that's like a, you know, they talk about gotcha, guess. they talk about gotcha journalism and that's like getting yourself, gotcha yourself, you know. Walk I'm going right to guess that it. you don't get to be mayor of Las Vegas without being, you know, doing whatever the casino people want you to do. <laughs> yeah. The, what the a conflict of, of interest, huh? Right. Um, I mean, how many people live in Las Vegas? 
Right, like what would happen too then if she does the, if she says that actually like opens up the city and then Las Vegas just you know has like thousands or tens of thousands of deaths all preventable because this idiot. Um, well, I just googled the population of Las Vegas in 2018. Their population was 644,000, which is almost as much as some of our smaller populated states. So you're gonna put that many people at risk because the casinos want to make more money. Yeah, you talk about short-sighted, you know. Right. Oh well, you know it, it'll be okay. They're cleaning, but it's like it doesn't matter how hard you clean if no one's been in the building for a month. There's not COVID in there, but the first <laughs> yeah. second someone with COVID walks in, all your cleaning was for nothing. Plus, you want to. There's so many buttons. If you like going into a casino, like every casino's got rods that you pull and buttons that you press, and there's uh, you know, like there's waiters, ner- waiters going from person <laughs> to person. You yeah. want any drink? Oh, here, take this. <laughs> Um, that's kind of like just a recipe for disaster. Um, I mean, I just I just googled it. So right now, uh, according to Google, there's fifty thousand one hundred and seventy-seven U.S. deaths from COVID worldwide. Almost one hundred eighty-eight thousand. So we're like pretty close to twenty-five percent of still twenty-five percent or over right now. Twenty-five percent of COVID yeah, deaths. We're so. like approaching one third. I mean, if this was, hopefully this isn't what Trump meant when he said you're going to get tired of winning, right? He never said winning what. I mean, it's such a perverse kind of, like, uh, situation we're in now. And we have, like, literally the worst people. I mean, that's the funny thing is, like, when Obama, after Trump won, Obama was quoted saying something like, well, at least the economy is going strong right now. We've fixed some of the, you know, some of the cracks of the healthcare problems we used to have. Like, maybe it'll be okay if, if Trump, you know, is president for four years. And then, like, you know, three years go by and we're like, thank God a fiasco or a <laughs> yeah. national incident hasn't happened yet. And then suddenly COVID, um, which just goes back to, like, one of the first tweets I remember seeing after, um, like, I think Trump's first week as president. I saw a hilarious tweet. It was, like, just saying, we selected our worst president or we selected our worst person to be president and so far it is not going well and it's like you could say the same thing for four years straight right yeah all right going to the next tweet there's a photo uh it's a political cartoon of obama drawing with a marker a red line a squiggly red line going everywhere looking very um unconfident then there's trump holding a missile drawing a red line with the tip of a missile and the caption is how to draw a red line and uh this is kind of bullshit because they're referencing syria i believe uh obama yeah. drew the red line um now if you recall obama went to congress saying give me the declaration of war and give me money and i will go send uh i will you know send troops to um to syria to fight Republicans were criticizing him nonstop, and when he made that ultimatum, Congress did not choose. They all the they voted against giving him funding and a declaration of war specific to Syria. So Obama did not do it because Republicans in Congress, despite uh, pillar, uh, I don't know if I'm using that word right, um, pillar, pillaring, pillaring, pillaring. Yeah, you're using yeah. it right. Uh, yeah to attack him in the media and then they didn't have the balls to commit their own names and their own votes to it and then there's trump drawing his red line with a missile which i mean all trump did was fire 
missiles into a unused airstrip that got quickly repaired, I believe. And then there was probably like Russian warning so that no Syrians were actually in harm's way. And arguably, you could say it was actually just a waste of taxpayer money, just wasting all those missiles <laughs> to do nothing. Um, yeah, <laughs> well, the the cost of Tomahawk missiles is uh, pretty expensive. Um, but I mean, it's such a dumb argument, too, because it's such a classic thing you see on conservatives like that they post, especially on social media, because, I mean, the, looking back at what happened in Syria the last four years, do you think it would have been a good idea to go to Syria? What was that, in 2012 or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Or 2014, maybe? Um, but, like, was that a good idea? Would, like, a, a third war in Iraq happen? Yeah, uh, we, we would have you know, troops good to idea? this day right now. We would have troops. Like, what would they do? What, uh, let's say we actually had put down our troops. It was such, like, a civil war. Like, which side would we even be on? We'd be on the rebels, but the rebels were split off into various ideological uh, struggles. And then you had Assad, and then you had um, kind of Iranian-backed uh, uh, militias kind of intervening in their own way. And then you had ISIS. Like, how, how, how would America win that war, you know? We already did that with, like, a sectarian three-way in Iraq with the Kurds, the Shiites, and the Sunnis. Um, I don't know. Syria had I even mean, more groups <laughs> fighting each other. Yeah. So... I mean, it's dumb, too, because it's not like Obama didn't spend eight years, you know, perfecting drone strikes. I mean, Obama was hardly a pushover when it came to foreign policy, and he definitely didn't do anything that didn't actually help. Right. You know, he didn't do anything to actively thwart or hurt American yeah. interests. And I don't think getting into a war in uh, Syria, especially at that time, would have suited America's interest at all. Yeah. Plus, if I recall, Obama kind of said that in a, a media. He, he was doing an interview, and he kind of said it offhandedly. And the fact that they took it like gospel or some, like, un, you know... I mean, yeah, it's, it's terrible that Basad used chemical weapons, but I don't think Obama... That wasn't, like, official public policy that he put out with his National Security Agency and the DOD. He said it in an interview. So, a little different, maybe. Right. Uh, speaking of drones, though, I just want to make this point. I've thought about this a lot of times. I don't think I've ever said it. Um, but just the... I, Obama is always... People talk about, like, oh, all the presidents are, um, uh, like, war villains and stuff like that, and... Uh, you know, I'm sympathetic to that idea to be, yeah, to be a war criminal. You have, to, I mean, like if you're going to be president with our military industrial complex and our uh, entanglements all around the world, just by running for president, you're basically setting yourself up to be a war criminal in some regard. However, I'm very sympathetic to the idea of Obama using drones. And people talk about that all the time, about how Obama drone people. But in terms of having these like wars that have all of these semi- uh, legal or illegal kind of like terminations of enemy combatants and um, um, innocent people who are not enemy combatants who are obviously get killed in the crossfire. Like say what you will about Obama, but winding everything down and part of it is just the increase in technology too. But having like limited drone strikes and not occupying or bombing like a whole new country and invading and killing hundreds of thousands of people, but kind of like dwindling it down with hard, with like more hardcore uh, legal um, kind of prudence and um, like focus on where you're striking it. Like, I, well, I'm just saying that I'm like sympathetic to the idea that like, you know, say what you will about all the people we did drone, narrowing it down and, you know, getting it more and more precise the, the two wars he inherited, that is the way to kind of like do it in the most conscientious way 
that I guess doesn't potentially harm American national security, right? Well, it's complicated because when you hear stories of people who are actually over there, right? I mean, there, there were some bad people over there who probably deserved to die. Um, and one thing I know Obama did do was that he made it the requirements much more stringent, especially in terms of potential civilian casualties. So when Obama came in, uh, he had kind of him, him and his people had upended some some of the Bush era, um, I guess, restrictions on drone strikes, and you know he immediately cut down the amount you know of lim- uh, collateral you know. Uh, deaths that might have occurred from a drone strike than the Bush administration. So, right. I mean, I mean, there's a lot to it, right? Um, and and yeah, drone strikes are way cheaper, um, especially at the end of his presidency. Um, they had really kind of perfected drone strikes in a lot of ways, especially compared to the early days where they could actually reasonably hit a, a, a target, you know, right exactly where they wanted to. Uh, coming from the right direction with the wind, the the spray pattern of the munition, all that stuff taken into account to really minimize civilian casualties. Now, things still happen, and it's terrible, um, and, and maybe he could have been more strict, but at the end of the day, you know, there we are at war over there. We have soldiers over there, and we're trying to take out people. I mean, I was listening to a podcast uh, of Jocko Willink and talking about uh, what happened when ISIS kind of sprung up and then took back some of the towns um, after America helped Iraq kind of take them back, ISIS took some of them back and then, um, you know, immediately just started slaughtering people. So like when you, you look at the human rights violations that especially people in Al Qaeda and ISIS and, and, and some of the people doing terrible things, like, uh, I think a surgical strike that, you know, while it's risky, especially early 2008, 2009, uh, I, I think it's definitely a lot better that we were doing that than, you know, occupying with a hundred thousand more troops or you know starting wars in other countries you know right yeah certainly here's another war one trump tweeted this video i guess of some i don't know who exactly is posting it but it's the the thing where uh iranian ships are harassing some u.n navy ships for propaganda purposes and i think trump just did that like executive order or something or that command that they should just kill the next Iranian ship that starts fucking with us. But he tweets, Sleepy Joe thought this was okay, not me. You know, um, What do you think about that, the whole Iran thing here? Do you think that's that'll, that'll help things uh, with our tensions with Iran? Well, it's complicated. I mean, everything's so complicated, but I know for a fact that, like, I, you know, I've been in that part of the world. Um, so Iran, they know what our doctrine is. They know... Um, pretty much what our areas uh, that will fire at them are and they go to that point and just stop so when you look at you know what seems intimidating or threat you know what seems like a threat in other parts of the world when you're dealing with Iran you know these aren't people who want to start a shootout you know these are people on small boats going against you know one of the most sophisticated Navy warships you know our cruisers and destroyers uh, and like they're not going to win a one on one with, you know, four small boats or, you know, um, you know, against a American destroyer. So, I mean, it's calculated what they're doing. Uh, they want to get video um, and, and our sailors take video and, and photographs, too. So we see how close they get. But there's literally a point where they, they get to like 100 meters and they stop because they know if they get any closer, it'll start tripping, you know, uh, national security tripwires for the ships and stuff. So like, I mean, it just follows a pattern. So when the media reports that Iran's doing this, it's like, well, what is the, the pattern of life? They, they do this stuff all the time. 
Um, so it's really not shocking. It's really not that threatening given the situation and the scenario. Like I can guarantee you, like I'm on this Twitter feed watching this video of them uh, uh, take video footage and there's sailors just walking around. Like this is like everyday stuff. You know what I mean? If you're right. going through that part of the world, you're going to expect Iran to send some some small boats out and harass a ship. Um, but that's just a pattern of life. And, and they're, they're really, I mean, it's calculated. They're not they're not going to start accidentally shooting. Like, I don't think there's going to be a shootout from this at any given time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, here's the next, treat, the next tweet is Trump saying, I've instructed the Navy to shoot down and destroy any and all Iranian gunboats if they harass our ships at sea. So is that just kind of an empty threat? The military is probably not just by themselves going to start shooting Iran ships. I mean... What do you, with the officers and stuff, there's no one really that, like, opportunistic to start something, right? Like, for a, for a U.S. No, you officer. get all kinds of, I mean, you get all kinds of briefs, and I guarantee you no American wants to start a war or shoot anybody. Um, I mean, this is, and it just, it just happens. They, they, they come out when they see a ship coming. Um, a couple small boats will come out. They'll probably go in front of the bow, like, a couple thousand yards and just stop because they know what track you're on, so they'll mm-hmm. just stop, right? And, and then, you know, while that could be intimidating, when the Navy ship, you know, doesn't slow down, they just get out of the way and they maintain a particular bubble around it. Um, I mean, this it's like theater, basically. I mean, the same thing happens every week, every month, every, you know, every season. This is just what happens whenever new ships come in. It's just a pattern of life out there. Now, they're doing their thing. You know, they take their video footage home and they show it on their media. And they're probably like, oh, look what, you know, we stood up to the big evil imperial Americans and, and look how cool we are. But like, I mean, this is not a war about to break out by any means. Right. Um, let's see. That's about an hour. Any other last thoughts? We kind of didn't talk that much about uh, Trump's Twitter. Um, no, kind of got do. some good conversations on some other topics, uh, ba- like inspired by his Twitter. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, well, I guess uh, we'll call it there. Been an hour. Maybe we'll just get started on another podcast. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody, to Brain Milk. I'm Dash McIntyre. And I'm Adrian Pope. Enjoy the guitar solo. Thanks for listening to Brain Milk. Uh-huh.